Hey Mamer, where have you been? Uh, yeah. Like all things, life life intervenes. Married, job, you know the thing. I've also been working on a book um, about Canadian conspiracy theories. The book is tentatively titled, You Can Have My Health Card When You Pry It From My Cold, Dead Hands. A uh, guide to Canadian conspiracy theories uh, for our American cousins. The, the idea of the book here is that um, there's always a segment of Americans that view Canada as kind of an a, escape hatch to, uh, to sanity. Uh, it's sort of a Canada they envision as sort of a land where, you know, people are, you know, not just more polite, uh, uh, not just sort of maybe uh, more boring, but, but also, um, you know, the, the politics is a little saner. The problems... Americans sort of imagine having in uh, in in the United States. Uh, they sort of uh, don't imagine in Canada, and and that is probably true, but it's only true by degree. Uh, you know, we we have our own share of white nationalists and racists and uh, evolution deniers and climate change deniers. In, in fact, uh, arguably in Ontario, sort of the, the largest province in Canada. In, in terms of both population and uh, GDP, we we pretty much just elected a a uh, mini Trump, uh, certainly a a climate change denier and someone who's playing up to the uh, the the right wing Christian vote to gain power. The idea of the book is is basically kind of a I don't know I can't say it's a manual, but it's a way of sort of walking our American cousins through that, you know, Canada has its own share of, of craziness. And, um, I don't know when it's going to be published. I'm, I'm three chapters in, oh boy, the, uh, the Mulroney chapter has been a real quagmire, uh, go down so many alleys with the, uh, Prime Minister Brian Mulroney chapter. Um, but, uh, I, I thought, I thought I would like to give you loyal listeners of Conspiracy Skeptic. I, I, I know you've all gone off to other better podcasts, but surprise, um, happy uh, happy July 4th day. I'm, I'm going to sort of read you uh, one of the chapters I have done in my, uh, in my, in my book. This would be uh, chapter two, uh, what I call Water, the Grand Canal, and the planned destruction of Canada. If you are a very, very old-time listener of Conspiracy Skeptic, I believe episode 10, I kind of did a uh, sort of uh, maybe a shortened version of this way, way back. Sort of, uh, it was all about various wacky Canadian conspiracies. And, and this this chapter basically sort of expands on uh, one part of that podcast. Chapter 2, Water, the Grand Canal, and the planned destruction of Canada. When writing about water shortages and the potential for conflict, it is customary authors lead with this Mark Twain quote, Whiskey is for drinking, water is for fighting over. It's clever. It's classic Twain. It uses a folksy kind of wit to illustrate a pressing social problem. It suggests water, as a source of conflict, is an age-old problem. It was true back in the days of Twain, and it's true today, so pay attention. Like 
Many clever quotes you find online attributed to clever people, it's a misattribution. There is no record of Twain ever having said or written it or anything like it. It appears this phrase was first spoken in 1983 by Warren Neufeld. Who? Yeah, exactly. He was South Dakota's Secretary of the Department of Water and Natural Resources. Regardless of the quote's source, it is true water is indeed worth fighting over. In international law, there are not many valid reasons to wage war. Cutting off water to a downstream nation has long been considered a clear act of war, a casus belli. Egypt regularly warns Ethiopia that reducing the flow of the Nile by diverting significant amounts for use in irrigation would be considered an act of war. Pakistan has been warning India an abrogation of the Indus Water Treaty would be considered a casus belli. Curiously, despite nations threatening war over water, and a long history of nations going to war over all kinds of limited resources, oil, gold, living space, there's only been, arguably, one actual war for water in all of recorded human history. The only known war for water took place about 2500 BC. It was waged by two city-states near the junction of the Euphrates and Tigris rivers. The city-states of Lagash and Uma battled over irrigation rights. Uma's king cut off the water that flowed into Lagash's irrigation ditches. Lagash's king sent in the troops. The first and only war for water left more than 3,600 soldiers dead. Hostilities ended when King Meselem, ruler of the city-state of Kish, acted as an intermediary and got the two warring kingdoms to abide by the world's first known peace treaty, which also happens to be the world's first international water treaty. The Treaty of Meselem the Treaty of Meselem was carved into a stone pillar and placed along the boundary between the two warring cities. Today, the pillar can be seen in the Louvre. The treaty reads, in part, Let the man of Uma never cross the border of Ningursu. Let him never damage the dike or the ditch. Although there hasn't been another war for water in over 4,500 years, Canadian conspiracy theorists back in the 1990s we're certain the USA was poised to invade Canada, destroy Canada as a nation, and seize Canada's water. Canada has about 20% of the world's fresh water. Although it seems like Canada has plenty to share, only between 7-9% to of Canada's total water is renewable. That is, water that replenishes itself via the hydrological cycle. About half of Canada's renewable water empties into the Arctic Ocean, Hudson Bay, and James Bay with the majority of Canadians living far south, huddled along the Canada-USA border, that water goes unexploited. The rest of Canada's water is fossil water. There's a lot there, locked up in lakes and glaciers. However, once it's gone, it's not coming back. If you start taking more water from your lakes than the hydrological cycle can put back in, even the largest lake will shrink to a fraction of its former size in a generation or two. Lake Chad, for example was once the sixth largest freshwater lake in the world. It started shrinking considerably in the 1960s due to drought and the demands of irrigation. Today, it's only about 10% of its former size. It is an entirely legitimate fear that Canada's mighty lakes could become ponds within a couple generations. Other nations coveting Canada's water could indeed apply political and economic pressure that would strongly compel Canada to share. 
There are certain parts of the world, notably in the USA, that could use and greatly profit from large influxes of fresh water. California's year-round growing conditions make it a key food basket to the world. California, on its own, is the world's fifth largest food producer. Much of California is naturally dry. Agriculture is highly dependent on irrigation and a Byzantine system of water rights. California is also regularly plagued by droughts. California has a significant drought about every 10 to 15 years. Between 2014 and 2017, California suffered the worst drought in its history. When water gets tight in the USA, like during the California drought, eyes turn north to Canada. Can't we pump that Canadian water to places like California, Arizona, Nevada, and Texas? There's seemingly an abundance of water in the Great Lakes. Can't some of it get diverted south? Curiously, there are not many laws on Canada's books that actually prevent bulk water shipments outside Canada's borders. Canada, with an international reputation for politeness to uphold, would seem downright rude if it actually passed firm laws outlawing bulk water exports. Canada, for the most part, discourages bulk water exports through a series of non-binding gentlemen's agreements. For example, the Great Lakes-St. Lawrence River Basin Sustainable Water Resources Agreement of 2008 is an informal, if not incredibly dry and boring, arrangement between the provinces of Ontario and Quebec and the U.S. Great Lakes states, Illinois, uh, Indiana, Michigan, Minnesota, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and, let's not forget, Wisconsin. The signatories agree, in part, not to divert large quantities of water from these shared lakes. The economies of Ontario, Quebec, and the Great Lakes states are highly dependent on adequate lake levels. Low lake levels threaten, for example, shipping. Over 200,000 jobs are tied to shipping on the Great Lakes-St. Lawrence Seaway. The shipping industry generates over $4 billion in taxes for Ontario, Quebec, and the Great Lakes states. Interestingly, interstate protectionism also keeps the U.S. Great Lakes states strong backers of these water compacts. Michigan, for example, takes the position that if California or Arizona industries need Great Lakes water so badly, why not simply move those industries and jobs to Michigan? Farmers in the Great Lakes states are in competition with farmers in California. As Howard Lerner, executive director of the Environmental Law and Policy Center in Chicago, noted to the Detroit Free Press in 2015, California milk competes with Wisconsin milk. Fruits and vegetables from California compete with fruits and vegetables from Michigan. The bottom line is we're not going to be shipping Great Lakes water out to California for agricultural goods that compete with those produced here. If you want to pipe vast amounts of Canadian water, there are a few political, economic, and engineering hurdles to overcome. You have to get haves to agree to share with have-nots. For reasons just illustrated, that's not easy. Should the haves be willing to share, the next hurdle is finding someone willing to pay for the infrastructure. It's incredibly expensive to move large amounts of water across a continent. You can't build a big pipe to deliver significant amounts of Canadian water south of the border. You need to build dams. Dams flood communities that need to be relocated. To get the water south, you need a water transport system that can move the water up and over mountains. 
Your water transport system requires the construction of a vast array of pumps, canals, and reservoirs. It also needs a series of dedicated power stations to drive the pumps. If you wanted to reverse the flow of fresh water that empties into the Arctic and funnel it south to the Great Lakes, you would need an estimated 10,000 megawatts of power. That's roughly enough energy to power over a million homes. If you wanted to send that water from the Great Lakes to California, what comes out of the farmer's taps would cost about 10 times what Californians currently pay for water. As it turns out, you can't actually ask Americans, or pretty much anyone else, to pay a water bill that's 10 times higher than their highest ever water bill. There's a limit to what you can psychologically charge people for water. North American civilization, it seems, is built around the idea that water is a cheap commodity and will continue to be a cheap commodity in perpetuity. Back in the 1960s, there was a proposal called the Great Recycling and Northern Development, i.e. Grand Canal. The Grand Canal was conceived by Thomas Kierens. Kierens, who died in 2003, was a Montreal engineer. His Grand Canal project laid out a way to top up the Great Lakes system with fresh water that flows north into James Bay. The price tag, estimated in 1988 by McMaster University economics professor Robert Andrew Muller, was $238 billion U.S., which, if you accounted for inflation, would be nearly half a trillion in today's dollars. In 2018 dollars, it would cost $2 billion a year to operate. And this is just to send water from James Bay to the northern shores of Lake Huron. That's a distance of about 185 miles. It's inconceivable how much it would cost to divert substantial amounts of Canadian water as far south as Southern California or Arizona. It should be obvious the Grand Canal plan remained only a plan because the cost was prohibitive. Half a trillion dollars is one-third of Canada's entire GDP. To put that in perspective, it's like asking the USA to take on a $6 trillion capital works project. You might not find many politicians willing to sign such a check. Not every politician, however, was scared away by the Grand Canal's scope or cost. In the 1980s, Quebec Premier Robert Barassa signed on to Kieran's Grand Canal plan. Barassa had just wrapped up Phase 1 of a massive hydroelectric project on James Bay. The James Bay project generates enough electricity to meet the entire needs of Belgium. Since Belgium is an ocean away, Quebec sells most of the power to the USA. If it worked for electricity, why not water? Kieran's, buoyed by Barassa's support, formed Granco in 1985. Barassa signed on as a director. Another director and fan of Kieran's visionary water diversion project was Simon Reisman. Reisman, who died in 2008, was an architect of Canada's free trade deal with the USA. Reisman was the one who initially urged Prime Minister Brian Mulroney, leader of Canada's right-leaning Conservative Party, to begin free trade negotiations with the USA. The Canada-USA Free Trade Agreement was signed on January 2, 1988. It was the precursor of the North American Free Trade Agreement, that is, NAFTA, which came into force January 1, 1994. Canadians have been living with free trade with the USA and Mexico for so long, many forget how much the average Canadian feared and opposed free trade with the USA. 
both the Liberal Party and the New Democratic Party, also known as the NDP, opposed Mulroney's free trade deal. Canadian conservatives themselves were long considered opponents of free trade. Free trade was much more of a liberal idea. It was the Liberal Party that had originally conceived a free trade with the USA. Liberal finance minister and mouthful to say, Donald S. MacDonald, suggested it initially as a way to jumpstart the economy after the very painful recession of the early 1980s. There was a joke at the time that ran, if you're for free trade in principle, but opposed to Mulroney's free trade agreement, you're a liberal. If you're for free trade in principle, and in support of Mulroney's free trade agreement, you're a conservative. If you're opposed to free trade in principle, and opposed to Mulroney's free trade agreement, your NDP. If you're opposed to free trade in principle, but you're all for Mulroney's free trade agreement, you're an American. The joke's implication was the free trade agreement was a lopsided deal, one heavily and obviously tilted in America's favor. The average Canadian had great reservations about what was being given away. The 1988 Canadian federal election was dubbed the free trade election, Although Mulroney and Reagan had both signed the Free Trade Agreement, it was not yet enacted via legislation in Canada. That duty would fall to whatever party won the election on November 21, 1988. The Liberals and NDP promised to tear up the deal if they won. Many walked into the ballot box feeling they were voting for Canada's very survival. In this kind of topsy-turvy political environment, rhetoric runs high. Facts take a backseat to fears of economic and cultural Armageddon. Canada was being served up to America on a silver plate. Under free trade, it was claimed, Canadian industries would pack up and head to the States. Laws protecting Canada's culture and its vaunted social programs, like free public health care, would be stripped away. Canada's sovereignty would be next. Canada would be subsumed into the USA as the 51st state. Canadians would be reduced to hewers of wood and drawers of water. The 1988 election saw Mulroney return to power with a majority government. Despite winning a majority of seats in the House of Commons, roughly Canada's equivalent to the U.S. House of Representatives, the Conservative Party actually lost the popular vote. Sound familiar? Because Canada has three major political parties, the right-leaning Conservatives, the centrist Liberals, and the left-leaning NDP, a riding's winner may not necessarily get the majority of votes. The riding's winner is simply whoever has the most votes. In the 88 election, free trade opponents split the votes between Liberal and NDP candidates. Although a majority of Canadians voted, in essence, against free trade, the split vote allowed Mulroney's Conservatives to come up the middle and win a parliamentary majority. Mulroney used his majority to pass the necessary enabling legislation to make the Canada-USA Free Trade Agreement law. For most, the passage of the FDA in Parliament was the end of a long political battle. With the FDA now the law of the land, maybe there might be some benefits. Things sure did seem cheaper at Costco on the American side. Maybe the FDA meant day-trippers to the States could bring back cheap American meat and cheese, for others, notably those of a conspiracy bent, passage of the FDA was but the first step in a malevolent plan, a plan that would end very soon with a U.S. military invasion of Canada. Why would the USA want to invade Canada? Well, 
There are about 35 million curiously attractive Canadians that could be added to the American workforce. There's also a lot of undeveloped beachfront property. And Canada has a lot of oil. America has a long history of going to war for oil. But in the early 1990s, oil wasn't as big a concern, not like the 2000s. There was an oil glut in the 1990s. As well, Canada had yet to start exploiting its oil sands, which makes up about 97% of Canada's oil reserves. Canada's oil sands weren't even on most people's radar back then. Should anyone have desired Canada's oil sands in the 1990s, it was not technologically and economically feasible to exploit those resources. It's not an oil you can pump out of the ground. It's bound up in sand and rock. You strip mine it and then superheat it to separate the oil from the rock. Improved technology and sustained higher oil prices have today changed the economics of the oil sands. Before the 2000s, Canada's oil production remained fairly stable. After the start of the new millennium, oil production in Canada took off. Canada produces twice as much oil today as it did in 1992. Today, Canada produces about 4 million barrels per day. Between 1976 and 1992, Canada produced oil at a reasonably steady rate of 2 million barrels per day. In the 1990s, if you were a conspiracy theorist, and casting about for a reason to fear invasion or some kind of expedient union with the USA, notably as a consequence of a free trade deal, oil would not be your first concern. Water, however, was a concern. As noted, Canada had recently entered into a free trade agreement with the USA. The architect of that free trade agreement, Simon Reisman, used Canada's water as a bait to bring American politicians to the table. Reisman also happened to be a director of Grand Co., which lobbied for the building of the Grand Canal project. Grand Co.'s American partner was Bechtel. Bechtel was not only America's largest engineering company, but it was the largest privately held company in the world. Privately held companies don't have to be as transparent as publicly held companies. If that wasn't raw meat enough for the conspiracy bent, Bechtel had a lot of high-level connections to the Reagan administration. Reagan's Secretary of Defense, Caspar Weinberger, and Secretary of State George Shultz were former Bechtel boys. Bechtel wasn't the only big-name company that formed an association with Grandco. Grandco's list of board members and corporate links resembled a who's who of the Canadian financial and engineering world. If half a trillion in government money was potentially up for grabs, it didn't cost much to at least lend Grandco your name or one of your board members. The reality was, though, Granco never amounted to much more than a small office of lobbyists. Granco did little more than produce glossy brochures and research papers. But, in the view of Canadian conspiracy theorists, ginned up on years of anti-free trade rhetoric about Canada losing its sovereignty, and now looking for some place to valve that existential fear, the Grand Canal plan and the fresh water it could unlock became the ultimate endgame of free trade. All that it would take was the destruction of Canada and its takeover by the USA. That nefarious plan was revealed in a 600-plus page tome called New World Order, Corruption in Canada. Published in 1994, it's a collection of articles and poetry, yes, yes, poetry, about the influences of the New World Order in Canada. 
There's some pretty nutty stuff in this book. There are articles like Beast of the Apocalypse, 666, a giant self-programming computer. That, that's all one article. There are other articles like Ottawa, a cult capital of the New World Order, and Population Reduction AIDS. The articles, and the poetry, in New World Order Corruption in Canada was edited together by Robert O. Driscoll. O. Driscoll, who died in 1996, was a professor of Celtic literature at the University of Toronto. Celtic or Celtic? I'm going with Celtic. The University of Toronto is one of Canada's top universities and generally considered one of the top 25 universities in the world. By all accounts, O'Driscoll was a highly respected academic. In the 1970s, he found a center at the UAT for Celtic studies. He published a number of well-received academic books about Celtic culture and Irish writers. His student evaluations were described as usually being off the charts. At some point, according to his colleague Patrick O'Flaherty, a professor of English literature at Memorial University, O'Driscoll got sick. In O'Flaherty's words, he thought himself surrounded by enemies. In his illness, he came to think that Jews were numbered amongst them. I don't know where he got this stupid idea. I can attest there was no anti-Semitism in the old O'Driscoll I knew. People lost patience with him. I did too. In the early 1990s, O'Driscoll switched from writing about Irish culture to writing about conspiracy theories. He fixated on Jews, the Antichrist, and the influences of the Church of Satan in Canada. New World Order, Corruption in Canada, was actually the third book in a trilogy. The two previous were The New World Order and The Throne of the Antichrist, that was published in 1993, and The New World Order in America, Mechanisms for a Police State, and that was also published in 1993. The anti-Semitism in O'Driscoll's initial tome was pretty ripe. It claimed Judaism, Freemasonry, and, for good measure, the Mormons were working in concert to prepare the planet for the coming of the Antichrist. The U of T ordered O'Driscoll to undergo a medical exam or face suspension. By the time New World Order Corruption in Canada was published, the U of T had had enough. O'Driscoll was suspended and barred from his office. Although some saw O'Driscoll's suspension as a violation of his academic freedom, the UAT had a valid reason for booting him. The administration was growing concerned for the physical safety of its staff and students. The year before, a disgruntled engineering professor at Montreal's Concordia University murdered four of his colleagues. The professor, Valerie Fabricant, had been exhibiting odd and threatening behavior for a number of years. Sadly, as John Cohen concluded in a report commissioned by the Concordia administration, Fabricant's supervisors had, quote, treated him far too benignly, end quote, for his behavioral issues. O'Driscoll's behavior, not his writing, was setting off alarms. In March 1994, O'Driscoll was arrested for making death threats to his wife, Elizabeth Elliot. In October 1994, O'Driscoll was arrested for breaking into his neighbor's house. Those were only O'Driscoll's more recent run-ins with the law. In the mid-1980s, he had been arrested for causing a disturbance at a play. In the late 80s, he attacked a UAT maintenance worker and was committed temporarily to a psych ward. 
The UAT wanted to get rid of him back then, but doctors convinced the UAT administration it was in the best interests of O'Driscoll's mental health if he went back to teaching, a job for which he never stopped expressing his love. Did the UAT have another Valerie Fabricant in the making? The administration wasn't going to wait around to find out. After being let go by the UAT, O'Driscoll hung around with some pretty unsavory characters, notably John Ross Taylor, a founder of a Canadian white supremacist political party called the Western Guard, and Canadian Holocaust denier Ernst Zundel. O'Driscoll was a guest on Zundel's TV show, Another Voice of Freedom, which aired in the 1990s on the public access channels of about 30 American cable systems. O'Driscoll's tussle with the UAT was well covered off campus by major Canadian media organizations like the Toronto Star, which even today has a readership in excess of a million people. The conspiracy crowd in Canada also took notice. If the establishment was trying to silence one of its own, you can't get more establishment than a tenured U of T professor, O'Driscoll must be hitting pretty close to the mark. He was a whistleblower. Although O'Driscoll was careful not to bring his anti-Semitic claims into the classroom, he did use his position as a tenured professor and the reputation of the U of T to give his conspiracy-mongering the imprint of authority. His third New World Order book, which followed his dismissal, gained considerable influence among the conspiracy crowd. Some referred to it as their Bible. Today, used copies are prized, going for over $300 on eBay and Amazon. Some sellers are asking for over $1,000 for a copy in good condition. If you don't happen to have more than $300 lying around to buy a 600-page book filled with poetry about the New World Order, take heart. Many articles, yet very little of the poetry, from New World Order Corruption in Canada have found their way online and into other publications. New World Order Corruption in the United States of Canada. This article by Glenn Keeley introduced the idea the Grand Canal was the ultimate prize in a game set in motion by Mulroney's free trade agreement. In the world of conspiracy theories, sometimes what most influences an idea's propagation is who is spreading the idea. It rarely has to do with what's being claimed and the evidence for it. It's doubtful, for example, ludicrous claims about politicians being shape-shifting space lizards would have gained much traction in conspiracy circles if it weren't for David Icke, an experienced sports broadcaster, Donald Trump, a popular reality show host and recent winner of the United States presidency, kept the Obama birther conspiracy alive and well long beyond its life cycle. The Grand Canal conspiracy had the perfect Canadian advocate. Glenn Keeley had been something of a folk hero to the anti-Mulroney and the wider anti-government crowds for years before the publication of New World Order Corruption in Canada. Several years previous to the publication of the book, Keeley managed to use an obscure Canadian law to force the police to lay corruption charges against the Mulroney government. That story will be covered in greater detail in another chapter. Suffice it to say, in the late 80s and the early 90s, Keeley had a level of credibility with disaffected middle-class white guys who were certain the deck was stacked against them. The bulk of Keeley's article, after a preamble featuring some anti-New World Order poetry, consists of the author being interviewed by someone named George Kralik. According to Keeley's article, interviewer Kralik is a Canadian Armed Forces veteran. Another article in New World Order, Corruption in Canada, 
called Investigation of the Military, George Kralik, details a run-in Kralik had with the Canadian Security and Intelligence Service, known as CSIS. CSIS is roughly Canada's CIA. While he was a member of the Canadian Armed Forces, Kralik was investigated for alleged ties to extremist groups. The author of Investigation of the Military, George Kralik, was Elizabeth Elliot, O'Driscoll's wife, the same wife who had him arrested a few months previous for making death threats. It would appear Elliot and O'Driscoll had reconciled sometime before the book's publication date. Kralik's interview with Keeley covers the standard claims about international bankers controlling the government and the money supply. Just in case the reader might miss what international bankers is code for, Keeley clarifies, quote, The cardinals of the new religion are international bankers, and almost all of the bankers are Jewish. About halfway through Keeley's article-slash-interview, he develops his Grand Canal conspiracy theory. The international bankers and the Freemasons desire a North American union. Canada is the union's attic. It's where all the stuff, water, other natural resources, is kept. The USA gets the good, white-collar jobs. It's the clean living room for the conspirators. Mexico is the basement boiler room. It's where all the dirty manufacturing jobs are sent. To get Canada to agree to a North American Union requires collapsing the Canadian economy. Step one is putting into power Quebec politicians capable of separating Quebec from the rest of Canada and forming a new independent nation. This would result in a deep recession. Canadians, previously hesitant to spend $100 billion on a mega-project like the Grand Canal, would now be more than willing. Such a project would create tens of thousands of new jobs. Alas, typical of most government mega-projects, costs would spiral out of control. The Canadian government would be forced to borrow another $100 billion. But the evil moneylenders would not be forthcoming. They would call in their loans and force Canada into bankruptcy. The USA would then quickly step up and acquire Canada's debt, along with Canada itself. Apparently, this new country would be called the United States of North America. It's not explained how American citizens would be okay with a name change. Lots of new water and those curiously attractive 35 million neighbors, all polite, may not outweigh the bother of having to replace all the letterhead. Oh, and since this new nation is to be the United States of North America, and Quebec is part of North America, well, America wants Quebec too, or no deal. The Grand Canal Project would have devastating environmental effects. Indian tribes in Quebec, particularly the Cree, would suffer the most. The devastation would go beyond merely flooding their traditional lands. According to Keeley, the damming of James Bay would create a lake so large, so heavy, that the Earth's axis would shift. To keep the Earth's axis as is, Canadian Indians would declare war. Quebec police forces would respond by attacking the rebelling Indians with helicopters. No mention is made if the helicopters are black, but we can safely assume they would be black. It would be a bloodbath, as per the grand design. The Canadian government, bankrupt and not able to fund its own peacekeeping mission to Quebec, would call upon the UN and the USA to help. Under the guise of a UN peacekeeping mission, a crack force of US troops based out of Fort Drum, the 10th Mountain Division, would mount a lightning strike. They would quickly surround Canada's capital, Ottawa. The Quislings, running Canada, would readily capitulate. 
U.S. forces would then mount an airborne attack on Canada's James Bay power project and seize it. Deprived of its major source of hard foreign currency, Quebec would surrender unconditionally. Oh, and all of this was to transpire by 2005. It didn't. Very rarely will conspiracy theorists ever admit they were wrong when dull reality lazily saunters past their firm dates for Armageddon. They usually don't go, oh wow, I I read that entirely wrong. Maybe I didn't actually know what I was talking about. Maybe I should just shut the fuck up. Typically, a conspiracy theorist declares victory. Nothing happened due to the heroic efforts of the conspiracy theorist. With the sheeple, now woke, the conspirators are forced to suspend their plans. Temporarily. The conspirators slink back underground and pick a new date. This new date is set far enough in the future to assure the sheeple will have forgotten. The sheeple will be helped along to forget with distractions, like a series of manufactured outrages in the pages of People magazine. Also, by no small coincidence, the new date for Armageddon is far enough in the future that the conspiracy theorist has lots of time to profit from another book or DVD series. Even if one doesn't quite buy any of Keeley's claims, one might at least give him credit for writing a clever bit of geopolitical slash fiction. One might, if it weren't for Keeley's conspiracy being largely a synthesis of two earlier sources. In the spring of 1994, former Time magazine foreign correspondent Lansing Lamont published a book called Breakup, The Coming End of Canada and the Stakes for America. In 1994, Quebec was on the verge of holding a referendum on independence. Americans started to realize that their seemingly polite neighbors to the north don't always play nice with each other. Lamont's book gave his American readership a detailed overview of the various economic and cultural divisions in Canada at the time, which mostly still persists today. The back half of his book is a worst-case scenario. How would a Canadian civil war go down? What would be the economic fallout for Canada and the USA? Lamont's civil war will sound pretty familiar at this point. Quebec declares independence. Indian tribes in Quebec rise up in violent rebellion. Canadian Indians attack the James Bay hydroelectric project, which powers a lot of America's economy on the eastern seaboard. Canada's response is ineffectual, and the USA invades with the 10th Mountain Division to protect its own interests. Lamont, who who died in 2013, was most certainly not a conspiracy monger. Lamont was Time Magazine's chief Canadian correspondent in the early 1970s. He was, by his own admission, a proud Canadophile. He was also an associate of David Rockefeller, who died in March 2017. In the 1980s and 1990s, Lamont worked for the America Society as Director of Canadian Affairs, The America Society was funded by Rockefeller. Rockefeller, as co-founder of the Trilateral Commission, was a figure that loomed large in conspiracy thinking. If the Illuminati, Freemasons, Luciferians, and international bankers were in need of a ringmaster, most conspiracy types would have pegged Rockefeller as their man. Lamont's breakup, The Coming End of Canada and the States for America, was embraced by the Canadian conspiracy fringe. Despite connections that would make Lamont suspect, he was seen by some as an establishment figure going rogue. Those who couldn't get past Lamont's connections with the founder of the Trilateral Commission, 
took Lamont's book as another example of how the conspirators prefer to hide out in the open. Groups like the Illuminati and the Freemasons seed the media, architecture, corporate logos, artwork in airport departure lounges, placemats at Denny's, and more with symbols, anagrams, and numerical clues. For conspiracy types who are clever enough to decipher these symbols and clues, they brazenly signpost the conspirators' nefarious plans. Then there are some, like Lamont, that just lay it all out in dry academic texts, arrogantly assuming the sheeple would take no notice. Lamont's breakup is most certainly not a dry academic text. Lamont's writing is approachable. His words betray the lifelong affection he had for his northern brothers. His Canadian Civil War scenario isn't quite as dire and bleak as cherry-picked four-sentence summaries make it seem. In Lamont's scenario, the 10th Mountain Division is deployed as a temporary peacekeeping force, not an occupying army. Some provinces join the USA out of their own volition. Breakup is not the Trilateral Commission's answer to the Turner Diaries. Most noticeably absent in Lamont's work are two elements that feature prominently in Keeley's work, the Grand Canal and the hard 2005 date for North American Union. The Grand Canal element does seem to be Keeley's own invention. Keeley, for a time, was working on a massive commercial property development deal in Ottawa's capital area. It was his skill at selling this project that got him a job offer from Grand Co., which, which Keeley turned down. The 2005 date comes from self-styled free trade whistleblower Shelley Ann Clark. Clark was a long-serving Canadian federal government employee. During the Canada-USA free trade negotiations, Clark worked as an executive assistant to Germaine Denis, one of two assistant negotiators working under Reisman. Although the free trade agreement was a federal initiative, requiring the federal parliament to pass, the negotiating team gave the provinces regular briefings. One of Clark's jobs was to prepare these briefing documents. As the term briefing implies, not all of the voluminous material generated during the bilateral talks made it in. Clark was asked by her boss, Denis, to delete some materials from the briefing documents. Where some people would see expedience, Clark saw deceit. In her mind, what was being deleted was part of the real trade deal. Clark alleges the real trade deal, the secret trade deal, is actually on papers that were sealed in canisters. These canisters were placed in a bunker that, for reasons neither Clark nor Keeley ever explain, had to be 16 miles outside of Ottawa. Of course, the real trade deal is what was eventually voted on and passed by the Canadian Parliament and the American Congress. The final deal was pretty transparent. Laws are not passed in secret or based on texts no one can see because they are sealed in bunkers. The signed deal was before the provinces, voters, and press for months. You cannot create legally binding trade deals between two nations with secret provisions not seen or passed by Parliament and Congress. Secret provisions not part of the past legislation cannot be hauled out to suddenly pave the way for continental union. In 1993, Clark started going on radio shows and giving interviews to alternative weekly newspapers claiming the original 1988 free trade deal had secret provisions, provisions that included giving water resources to the USA. Clark has never been able to produce documents to back her claims. She freely admits everything she saw is reconstructed from memory. To her credit, she well understood taking government documents would be theft. In many of her interviews, 
Clark talks about a chart she saw with 2005 being a date of importance. In Clark's early interviews, she's vague about what 2005 referenced. It was the date of some, quote, implementation plan. I'm going to read an interview she did with Alberta Talk radio host Dave Rutherford. Rutherford interviewed her on his 1990s-era AM radio show. Rutherford, you're suggesting, though, that the potential for virtually destroying Canada was there and agreed to, this implementation agreement. Why would they do that? Clark, they cannot possibly afford to let the provinces see any of what was being done because the provinces, even though the act governing all of this does not require the signature of the provinces to get the free trade deal through, they still need the agreement of the provinces because it meant the provinces would have to change their trade rules to begin with, and B, they have certainly made a humongous fuss at our having to sell out the U.S. by the year 2005, which is when the implementation scheme is geared for. Rutherford, 2005? Clark, yes, that was on the chart. One does wonder why Clark waited half a decade to speak up publicly about FTA skullduggery. It might be that Clark at the time was a candidate in the 1993 federal election. Clark had joined a fringe party called the National Party. The National Party sprang to life in 1992 with a platform that was almost exclusively focused on opposition to the FDA. Clark came in fifth in her riding of Carlton Gloucester. She got 772 of the 69,757 votes cast in her riding, little more than 1% of the vote. It might be also Clark was encouraged back then by her husband. Her husband at the time was none other than Glenn Keeley. Keeley's patched-together slippery slope of a scenario might not, in another day, have gained much traction beyond the handful of people who acquired a copy of O'Driscoll's New World Order Corruption in Canada. Keeley's conspiracy theory may have never gone beyond the one guy who read O'Driscoll's book and his five co-workers who now had to listen to him every day. However, by 1994, Canadians in Toronto and other urban centres began hooking up in large numbers to the internet via small, privately owned internet service providers. Systems like io.org, interlog.com, and a series of local free nets gave anyone with a 14.4k modem access to low-cost dial-up internet accounts. Anyone could now get their own personal conspiracy in front of thousands of strangers. At the start of the 1990s, the Toronto area was in the grips of a series of horrible schoolgirl murders. DNA evidence was, like the internet, a technology in its infancy. Toronto's Centre of Forensic Sciences had only two qualified staff members to handle about 50,000 DNA samples collected by police efforts to find the killer, or killers, of schoolgirls Leslie Mahaffey and Kristen French. The DNA evidence eventually led them to their man, or man and woman. In 1993, the police were able to match DNA found on their victims with Paul Bernardo. Bernardo and his wife, Carla Homolka, were arrested. They were tried separately. The prosecution felt at the time Bernardo was the main perpetrator of the crimes and his wife was a reluctant accessory. Only after a plea bargain deal was made with Homolka did videos of the crimes emerge. The videos painted a picture at odds with the prosecution's theory of Homolka being an unwilling participant. In the videos, Homolka seemed to be an active accomplice in the rape and murder of the girls. Unfortunately, the Crown, 
which is Canada's term for the prosecution team, was struck with the plea bargain deal. Under the plea bargain arrangement, the plan was to try Hamalka first. After securing her conviction, her testimony would be used to convict her husband. Bernardo, the Crown knew, was not going to go down without a fight. So as not to prejudice the jury pool for Bernardo's trial, Hamalka's trial was conducted in secret. Well, not so much a secret. It was conducted with a pool of journalists present, but they were under a publication ban until Bernardo's trial. The publication ban technically was only applicable to Canadian media organizations. American journals were free to report on the trial in the USA. Back in late 1993 and 1994, the one place in Canada to learn about the details of Hamalka's trial was on the internet. The World Wide Web, Facebook, and YouTube weren't yet go-to places for information and discussions. The most popular place for such was the Internet's Usenet bulletin board system. Information about the Hamalka trial from U.S. and U.K. news services was freely available on Usenet groups like Can.Politics and the seemingly tastelessly named Alt.Fan.CarlaHamalka. I say seemingly because Fan was a Usenet naming convention that merely signaled the group was for topic obsessives, pro or anti. In other words, fans of the topic, not of the actual murderess. Many who logged on to read secret trial information were now primed to view the internet as a place where the real story was to be found. It was the new Wild West. The internet was beyond the reach of government and Johnny Law. Those dumb donut-eating cops didn't even know how to turn on a computer, let alone configure a modem to get online. So if you wanted to leak information, true information, the net, Usenet in particular, was the place to do it. In the fall of 1995, a Usenet poster who went by the name of Financial Opportunities started filling Candot politics with multi-part posts about the Grand Canal conspiracy. Many of these posts were electronic transcripts of articles by Keeley and Clark from O'Driscoll's New World Order, Corruption in Canada. It's unknown how electronic copies of these articles got into the hands of the person behind the Financial Opportunities moniker. Back in the mid-1990s, publishers did not offer ebook editions. It is possible the Financial Opportunities user brute force typed the articles into his or her computer from a copy of New World Order, Corruption in Canada. The articles could have been scanned in. Scanners and optical character recognition software were not prohibitively expensive in the mid-1990s. The Financial Opportunities user could have been given electronic copies of the articles by O'Driscoll or others involved in the production of New World Order Corruption in Canada. The book's publisher, Saigon Press of Toronto, seems to have only published this one book. It's not unbelievable Saigon Press went belly up by 1995, and article authors like Keeley and Clark felt they were at liberty to offer their words to those willing to distribute them online. Keeley, who had a long career as a sales guy and business person before becoming one of Canada's top conspiracy theorists, could also have been financial opportunities. Regardless of who was behind the financial opportunities account, many found the posted material shocking and fascinating in equal measure. It was the first time many had ever heard of the Grand Canal project. How could something so big in scope, with so many big-name backers, have remained hidden from the Canadian public? For those who did some research, there were several verifiable facts behind Keeley's tale. Free trade negotiator Simon Reisman, 
was indeed linked to the Grand Canal project. As predicted by Keeley, Quebec did launch a bid for independence. Quebec held a referendum in June 1995. The U.S. 10th Mountain Division, which had been deactivated in the late 1950s, had been reactivated as a fast reaction force, intent for rapid deployment abroad in times of crisis. More ominously, in 1988, around the time the free trade agreement was signed, the division was moved from its old base in Georgia to Fort Drum, New York. Fort Drum is less than a three-hour drive from Ottawa. Usenet was a useful tool for many early internet users wanting to distribute information. You only had to fire up an app and join groups like can.politics or alt.conspiracy. No programming knowledge was required. You didn't have to figure out how to set up a web hosting service or learn HTML. The downside was posts didn't stick around for long on Usenet. There was little permanence to the information. British Columbia software developer Jeff Koftinoff, intrigued by the Grand Canal conspiracy, started to collect and preserve Usenet posts related to the Grand Canal and other Canadian-related conspiracies. He created an early website to archive this material. Not many ISPs in the mid-1990s offered web hosting, and not many people were capable of hand-tooling the underlying HTML code. Koftinoff was, and still is, a computer wizard. At age 13, Koftinoff was writing commercial software for the Apple II. He went on to become an expert in embedded systems. If his LinkedIn profile is up-to-date and accurate, today he works for Apple and is a technical editor for the Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, IEEE. Members of the IEEE are basically the people who get together, break down every aspect of future technology, and set the standards before you, or I, are aware of the technology even existing. In short, Kotanoff has always been a guy with a keen eye for what's coming down the pipe. Koftanoff actually encountered Keeley in a restaurant a few years before Koftanoff set up his website. Koftanoff and his future wife overheard Keeley talking about the Grand Canal scheme. They struck up a conversation with him and eventually attended one of his lectures. Koftanoff found Keeley's overarching conspiracy hard to believe, but the core message that Canada's water resources could be up for grabs if voters remain uninformed did resonate with him. Koftanoff's website is long gone, but fortunately a site called The Wayback Machine has an intact copy of all the material he archived. It's not a pretty site by today's standards, but Koftanoff's site back then was a sensation. It garnered a lot of media attention. It won a Microsoft Canada Eyesight of the Day award. It was featured in right-wing publications like BC Report Magazine and left-wing publications like the Montreal Mirror News Weekly. Other than Koftanoff's own introductory pages that indicate his doubts about a grand, Grand Canal conspiracy, most of the archive material was of a credulous nature. Tales of secret Mulroney deals seemed par for the course to an online world that, during the early days of the net, skewed liberal. Many from the liberal set uncritically accepted the far-out claims of Keeley and Clark. This bothered political activist Marjolina Repo. Repo was, in the mid-90s, the national organizer of Citizens Concerned About Free Trade. Repo is a journalist, social rights activist, political advisor, and campaign manager. Whether you agree with all, some, or none of what she believes in, she's a classic example of that thin layer in Western society that works for us to precipitate social change. 
Gay people just don't get the right to marry because some cultural timer goes off. Pot does not legalize itself. It takes that thin layer, people like Repo, to light fires and use their know-how to work the political bureaucracy and the media. Unfortunately, in the 1990s, the emerging internet was a wild card for people like Repo. It was unfiltered. Online information consumers faced the same problem we still face today. What's real? What's fake news? While working as a national organizer of citizens concerned about free trade, Repo started hearing from Canadians who had read the Keeley and Clark material posted online. The message she was hearing from Canadians was, since there was a signed secret deal hidden in a bunker, there seemed little that could be done to fight that free trade agreement. In an interview I conducted with Repo for this book, she recalled their frustrations with Keeley and Clark. Keeley's and Clark's bizarre claims misled a great number of people and demobilized them from the ongoing fight against the FTA. Fears about free trade, or more likely, good old confirmation bias, short-circuited a lot of people's common sense. As Repo put it, quote, A hidden, buried, unknown so-called free trade agreement has no validity whatsoever in any law, domestic or international. How could it possibly be implemented and enforced if it does not exist outside the canisters? Ordinary common sense would make this clear, unquote. When the final free trade agreement was signed, many provincial premiers, a premier is analogous to a state governor, were not fully pleased with the deal. Their opposition tended to follow along party lines. Liberal premiers were not happy with the deal. Conservative premiers were pleased with the deal. However, no premier ever claimed the deal signed varied significantly from the one they were briefed on. When the expanded NAFTA agreement was being negotiated and debated half a decade later, no premier from the time of the FTA came forward warning the original FTA had been a bait-and-switch. Whatever Clark thought her boss, Germaine Denis, was up to during the free trade talks, it didn't seem to have anything to do with a secret deal. Time has proven her interpretation false. Many people argued the 1988 Implementation Plan chart, which Clark mentioned a lot in 1993, was the ultimate proof of her claims and her credibility. No one saw this chart until a reconstruction was released by her husband, Glenn Keeley, in 1994. If you were to take Keeley's word that this was the chart Clark saw in 1988, it eerily and accurately predicted events that actually transpired. For example, it predicted in 1991 American Express would be given Canadian chartered bank status. And guess what? That really happened. It predicted the Canadian government would extend patent protection on pharmaceuticals in 1993. Lo and behold, that happened in 1993. It predicted Canada's agriculture would be gutted by the USA. And sure enough, in 1994, Canadian sales of Durham wheat were found not to be in compliance with Article 701.3 of the Free Trade Agreement. Amazing, no? There was no way to explain the stunning predictive power of the implementation chart if it weren't the real thing. It was clear the conspiracy's master plan was now in the hands of the good guys. Of course, there's another way to explain the chart's predictive power between 1988 and 1994. No one saw this chart until Keeley, then Clark's husband, reconstructed it in 1994. He claimed it was based on Clark's memory. It's not hard to imagine Keeley put items on the chart that had transpired between 1998 and 1994. They were things he didn't like and felt were drawing Canada ever closer to takeover. 
It does seem Keeley's chart is a great example of the power of postdiction, not prediction. There are two pretty good clues that the implementation plan chart is a work of postdiction. First, nothing on the chart after 1994 came true. Separation of Quebec in 1997 didn't happen. Native revolt in 1998 didn't happen. Canadian financial crisis in 1999 didn't happen. Second, the contrast between the postdictions and the predictions is telling. The chart's post-1994 predictions are earth-shattering events, revolution, financial crisis, Canada's loss of sovereignty. The postdictions, that is, the events that had already transpired by 1994, are pretty yawn-worthy and in keeping with the rather dull way things go down in Canada, an order in council that allows higher foreign ownership of mines, the creation of a new bank, patent laws are harmonized with GATT, wheat disputes. Clark self-published a book in 2011 called The Sale of the Century. In her book, she includes a reproduction of the implementation chart Keeley was flogging back in 1994. By 2011, she should have been aware the chart did not sync with reality. It failed spectacularly. In her book, she attempts to argue much of what was on the chart actually did come true. She lists a bunch of things that transpired since 1998 that, in her view, were bad things for Canada. The only problem is, the things she lists in her book were not on the 1994 chart. Her argument seems to be, look at this chart. A lot of things I didn't like happened since I first started talking about the chart. So, so, so there. A large part of her 2011 book is material she published in O'Driscoll's New World Order Corruption in Canada. Transcripts of radio show interviews, alternatively weekly articles about her from 1993, and loads of other stuff that have been kicking around the internet since the days of financial opportunities. The Sale of the Country also documents her time working for Germain Denis, which he sometimes spells as German Denis. It's clear Denis was the boss from hell, and she was working in a pressure cooker environment. She would go home at 10 p.m. and then call back into the office at midnight to work until 4 a.m. It took a toll on her relationship with her first husband, who was not Glenn Keeley, and contributed to the breakup of her marriage. It also helps to explain how she came to think a secret free trade deal was placed in canisters and sealed in a bunker. Her boss, Denis, was a bit of a third wheel on the negotiating team. Mulroney had initially two English speakers, Simon Reisman and Gordon Ritchie, working as Canada's negotiators. Quebec, Canada's major French-speaking province, noticed there were no French Canadians at the negotiation table and demanded a francophone be included. The days of America conducting international diplomacy in French pretty much died with Benjamin Franklin, so naturally it didn't seem like there was going to be a need to conduct any negotiations in French. Still, Quebec, which is very politically powerful, insisted. Mulroney parachuted Germain Denis in at the last moment. Denis did not have much of a career in the Mulroney government after free trade negotiations wrapped up. He went on to work as a private trade consultant. He also seems to have required some rather dubious honors since the FTA days. A biography of Denis on his website and various press releases online boasts he's listed in Cambridge's Who's Who. He was awarded the World Medal of Freedom in 2005 by the American Bibliographical Institute and was named Cambridge Publishing's Professional of the Year in 2007. 
it, it doesn't take much time on Google to dig up. These are all vanity awards anyone can purchase for a few hundred dollars. One wonders why Denis, who has a respectable CV from his Mulroney days, would feel a need to pad his image. The sale of the country paints Denis as a vain and officious man. Clark relates an incident where she discovered a major security flaw in their computer system. Instead of being recognized for her diligence, Denis allegedly called her on the carpet and warned her to stay in her lane. There's also a particularly horrifying chapter in her book alleging Denis offered himself to Clark in an Ottawa hotel as a Christmas present. As free trade negotiations wrapped up, the order came down that all materials related to negotiations were be turned over to the National Archives. One can imagine Denis wanted some of the material he produced for a future portfolio or even as a personal trophy. Clark's assumption for years had been Denis spirited away the secret deal and hid it from the Canadian public. A more prosaic explanation is simply Clark witnessed Denis absconding with documents he wanted for his personal portfolio. Who of us has not left the job with work materials to pad out our own personal portfolios? Keeley's conspiracy, if we recall, involves the U.S. military takeover of Canada to remove political opposition to building the Grand Canal on James Bay. The Grand Canal makes available vast amounts of untapped water from Canada's north. Keeley weaved together a compelling conspiracy narrative from disparate issues of the day, free trade, water export policies, environmental issues, and the marginalization of Indigenous Canadians. However, he clearly didn't take a close look at a map of North America. He completely missed that western part of the map that identifies Alaska as part of the USA. And Alaska, like northern Canada, has a lot of recyclable water that empties into the ocean. If you can get Alaska to offer up its water, the USA doesn't need to invade Canada. It just so happens Alaska was offering up its water. In 1991, the governor of Alaska, Walter J. Hickel, proposed building an undersea pipe from Alaska to northern California. Costs were estimated to be about $100 billion. The U.S. Office of Technological Assessment, the OTA, studied the proposal and concluded much like Mueller's 1988 Grand Canal study, the water coming out of a tap in California would have to be priced well beyond what consumers were willing to pay. The OTA asserted there was still a lot of slack in the system. It would be far cheaper to implement a combination of grey water reclamation, improving the efficiency of canals and reservoirs, that is, reducing leaks and evaporation, and implementing desalination technologies. Advances in desalination technology hold more promise for parched American states than massive continent-spanning engineering projects. The estimated end-user cost of desalinating ocean water is today on par with the cost of water estimated by Mueller in his study of the Grand Canal. That's still expensive, but building desalination plants is a lot cheaper than invading another country. Desalination is also a lot cheaper if you start with brackish water costs drop by half. Desalinating brackish water is cheaper because it has a lower salt content. Half the cost of desalination is from the energy required to drive the process. Higher the water's salt concentration, the more pressure you have to create and the more energy you have to put into the system. Even if the ocean is your only source of water, cheaper renewable energies like wind and solar can significantly reduce the cost of desalination. As well, 
future technologies could reduce energy consumption by two-thirds. It's not hard to imagine the pace of innovation could be quickened if the USA invested a fraction of the Grand Canal's costs into research. Much of America's water problem would be solved with next-generation desalination technology. And that's a pretty grand idea.